Hello, and welcome to Sobercast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Yeah, I'm Weezy, and I'm an alcoholic. And I uh, want to thank the committee for asking me. It's been wonderful. I've seen some people I haven't seen in years. And uh, I've really enjoyed myself. And and I won't tell you any lies because there's probably the greatest concentration of people who watched me come in here as any group I've seen in 20 years. Um, I uh, used to say I wasn't always an alcoholic, but that's open to debate. Um... The longer I'm around, the less positive I am, the less dogmatic I can be about what I think might be the right way. I just, um, I can't pound it like I used to. This is it, and that's the way. So I don't know whether alcoholics are born or made or just stumble in, but does it really matter? I was a funny kid. I never quite heard the right drummer, um... And I had compulsions. Um, They couldn't get me to eat anything but potatoes. So they were going to bribe me. That that was the idea. They they said they'd give me three squares of a Hershey bar if I'd clean up my plate. So I cleaned up my plate, and I said, if you can't give me at least half a bar, forget it. I'm not going to mess with three squares. (laughs) I think I was about three Uh, And uh, I never did like to do things halfway. So um, I had a bit of a temper. I threw tantrums. I remember one time where this enormous confrontation with my great-grandmother occurred about the color of my socks. They didn't match my sunsuit, and I had to be perfect. And uh, she didn't understand. It was whichever ones were clean as far as she was concerned. And... Uh, so I threw a tantrum and turned blue, and, and that was my first recollection of being whipped. My mother came home and to beat up on me for a while, and uh, but I was such a sassy kid. In later years, the shrinks were to talk about how abused I was as a child. If you had a kid with a mouth like mine, you'd go crazy and abuse him, too. <laughs> the baby was asleep. This is I'm ten before another baby occurred. And uh, the baby was asleep, and I went out the back door and banged the screen. And mother's thumbs yelling out after me about banging the screen. And I turned around and said, I suppose you didn't make any noise yelling at me. (laughs) She beat the shit out of me. HRS would be on her doorstep today. But I really don't blame her. I didn't get along very well at school either. I was um, usually telling the teacher how she could improve her teaching methods. I remember, you know, you go back over your most embarrassing moment. Once in a grade school, this poor teacher was showing us how to draw a horse. And I'm sitting there telling the little boy next to me, she shouldn't even try a horse. She doesn't have any talent. I could do better than she's doing. And she heard me. And I got to try. 
Um, but my mouth is usually what got me in trouble. My dad decided I needed straightening out, so he took me over to a parochial school and introduced me to Sister Claude. <laughs> I was in the fifth grade, and, and uh, she gave me a, a kind of an understanding that um, I'd never had before about school stuff. We know now that it was probably learning disabilities or something like that. And she took extra time, got them straightened out, and I got the feel of making all A's, and gee, I loved it. And then I forgot all about education, and all I wanted to do was make all A's and be tops on the list and have my name read first. And, uh, that was really all I cared about was being number one, winning at the game. And I I wanted to win all the games. And and we had this religion class, and it was told about heaven and stuff. And uh, and we stood up every morning and said, I offer you all my prayers, works, and sufferings of this day. And I figured out that sufferings were greatly to be desired, that they were a plus. If it, if it hurt, it was really good for you. And if it was fun, it was bad. I got it all figured out. You're supposed to suffer. So I went down to Sacred Heart Church and made a novena to St. Francis Savior that... Um, I would get all my hell on earth so that when I died, I could go straight to heaven. Years later, I told that to Flash, and he said, Well, you first were answered, you became an alcoholic. <laughs> so I wasn't exactly right in the head. And not a lot of improvement occurred when I went to work. I didn't want to go to work. I, I wanted to go to college, and, and uh, things were not right that I could go just when it was time for me to go. And, and uh, they weren't right for the whole family, but, you know, it took me 20 years to find out that it might have inconvenienced somebody besides me. I took it all personal. After all, I was the center of the universe, and it, it was my mind they were wasting. And uh, I, it was my resentment to carry. And uh, I didn't want to go to work because I knew that would seal it. I wouldn't get to go to college. And I, I'd been, mother and dad been out of town, and I'd, I'd been eating strawberry shortcake and beer for breakfast and playing tennis all morning, and I expected to do that this next day, too. And Mom came in with a newspaper, and she had it rolled like this, and she had this big circle here, and she said, You see this? This is a good company, and you qualify for that job. And you get up, and you go down there, and you get that job, or you don't eat here anymore. That lady down there thought I was a ball of fire. I got the job. So as long as I had it, I decided I'd be the best at it there ever was. And um, I was pretty good at it, too. I worked there a couple of years and turned up in embezzlement and a fraud. And, uh, <laughs> turned it, squealed on my friends, got promoted continuously. They used, to, they used to give you $5 a month raise when you got promoted. And five dollars a month, and um, you work five and a half days uh, a, a week, you know. Gee, that was about a dollar a week. And uh, shoot, in those days you could buy half a pint with a dollar anyway. And uh, I, I felt outside. I'd never felt like I quite belonged in grade school. And you know, my kindergarten experience—we left out for the sake of brevity. I didn't fit there either. And, uh, and when I went to Catholic school, I wasn't quite in step because I'd been in public school and I wasn't quite up with them. And then, well, just I wanted to be loved and liked and it just didn't seem like anybody ever did. And uh, so because I was so successful in the business world, 
Uh, I got promoted so fast, I was afraid they wouldn't like me. So I joined the crowd that went down after work to the bar downstairs. And it was wonderful. And you know what? I found another superior quality that I have. I could out drink anybody. I couldn't drive sober, but if you know somebody needed to be driven home after I was drinking, I could drive. Uh, isn't that scary? <laughs> I, I found out that I had this superior capacity. Wow, did I start putting this stuff away. And I didn't have any particular adverse effect. I, just, I really do have a fun period to look back on where there was a lot of craziness and a lot of dancing and a lot of being thrown in the pool and, uh, you know, just crazy fun stuff. And I'm not sure that isn't a handicap because I'm, I've heard people say they can look back and they can see that they were an alcoholic and they were sick from the first drink. I don't remember doing much throwing up. And they, they can talk about uh, the misery starting on day one. No, I didn't. The greatest thing ever invented. I was delighted with the stuff. Just see what thinking of drinking will do for you. <laughs> so I continued to try to be the best of everything, and I used to take the bank deposit over to the bank on my lunch hour, and I'd have my little bank deposit bag under my arm, and I'd I'd stop down to a place downtown and have lunch with a martini. And uh, you see, the problem with my drinking was that I started soaking it up so fast. And um, and I couldn't dare run out. I mean, you know, the, the crash was so bad that the reason I don't brag hangovers and, and throwing up and everything is I just never let myself get to that point. I um, would drink in the evening. And then I would uh, drink, it, I woke up at 3 o'clock, and I'd have a drink. And then, uh, let's see, morning would be uh, in the coffee. And then there was coffee break about 9.30, and then there was lunch, and there was afternoon coffee break, and then you were off work, you'd start all over again. And I did this for several years. And uh, it began to worry me. One thing that worried me was is it was damn expensive. And uh, I didn't make an awful lot of money. <clears throat> And uh, my habit was costing me. And uh, so I didn't know what to do about it. I tried to quit drinking, to cut it down. This is where the real misery comes in. When you start trying to quit. And all the angles and shenanigans and things you're going to do. You know, it's like the tar baby. With one paw stuck in the tar. Do you remember your childhood fables? And he's only got one paw stuck, so he fights it with the other one, and, you know, pretty soon both feet are stuck fast. All four feet, in fact. Or the tiger story about the little boy that had a pet tiger, and he came home from school one day, and his, his mama said, Son, you got to get rid of the tiger. He says, Why? And she said, Well, he just ate your little brother. And uh, so... He said, yeah, Mom, I'm sure I know i got to get rid of that. I, I know I do. I've got to get rid of that. And the next day he came home, and his mother met him at the door and says, Son, you got to get rid of this tiger. I said, uh, why, Mom? He says, just ate your father. So the next day he came home and he said, No, i got to get rid of that tiger. 
He opened the door and his mother wasn't there. And he says, I've got to keep you. Now you're all I have. <laughs> well, that's the way booze did me. While, I, while my booze is progressing, all my connections and friends and circles of friends and so forth were doing things like getting married, settling down, having babies, so forth, you know, leading normal lives, going past the party phase. I mean, you know, the normal early 20s partying was over, and I was just an old gal hanging in there drunk. And uh, <laughs> believe you me, I fought it. I fought it with everything I could think of. I changed jobs. I got married. Of course, I married my drinking buddy. Who else would marry me at a time like that? He wasn't damn bit better than I was, but then we didn't cause each other to drink. We just married each other so we wouldn't spoil two families. And uh, <laughs> My folks were delighted. They thought that was the answer. We were going to get married to this nice boy. And little did they know. Well, we used to get drunk and fight, and the first one out the door would go home to my folks. And, well, you know, I, I came from, um, I just happened to grow up and live in a big old house, and it had so much room that it was pretty hard for them to deny access. Matter of fact, that's why they finally sold it. They couldn't keep their relatives out. But uh, So we'd keep going home, and occasionally we'd go home together when we couldn't make rent, or we were in trouble. Or the, my poor deceased ex-husband used to have trouble making the front page of the paper. I mean, he didn't have any trouble making the front page of the paper. He used to do it regularly. He turned off freeways where there weren't exits, and he um, tried to straighten out the S-curve on the Bay Shore, and uh, he hit a prominent local citizen in the jaw in a bar, and, you know, he he was um, a celebrity, and uh, sometimes we don't even know what he hit. The one time we hid the car because it had paint on it, the motor was not clear off the motor mounts, and we were scared of what he might hit and he couldn't remember. And we hid the damn car for a while to read the paper. Was anybody killed or hit and run in? Must have been a mailbox or something because we, nobody ever complained. Or it was another drunk or something. Yeah. Well, one day Bob was sitting in, in the chair watching TV and drinking a beer, and uh, my dad came in and said, Bob, why don't you get a job? And he said, well, Weezy's working, and I'm drawing unemployment. There's really no need. <laughs> After that, there was a need. We had to move. But then I came home one more time. I left Bob and came home one more time, the time he broke my nose, and uh, it really is better than it was. Everything happens, it has to happen, and it's not quite as sharp as it was right in there since he broke it. And um, Daddy decided that I should join AA. He had a childhood friend who was in the program. He was one of the Tampa's very first members of AA. So he called him up and said, Jim, I've decided my daughter's an alcoholic. Come over here and fix her. He sent he sent some nice people over. They were really nice. And and they tried. They talked to Mom and Dad. And I went in the bathroom and got another drink out of the back of John and came back and listened to him some more. <laughs> hey, listen, that's hard to set that thing down without making a good plank. <laughs> so then they started taking me to some meetings. And the meetings were down on Kennedy, and um, which was in Grand Central. And... Uh, 
up over the Miller High Life Brewery, and and I'd get in there, and they'd tell me to just, they'd see me come in, I'd be so drunk, and they'd say, just, there's a chair over there, and they'd set me in the chair and go on with their meeting. And then, if I wasn't that drunk when I got there, I didn't want to go up there and sit in a chair, and uh, I would go across the street to the gay bar, and they bought me drinks, and I don't know why. Well, that wasn't a very successful round of AA. I did remember that they were nice. I particularly remembered Annette. Because she really had, well, she talks loud enough that she got through. And she had given me a few little talks. Kind of backed into a corner. She had told me a few things I should have known. And I remembered her, sort of. But then I, I just couldn't go on like this. I lost my job at the bank, and, and um, I couldn't find Bob. Thank God. And uh, I was really very sick, so I slit my wrist. And that started the hospital. Now, you'll be glad to know we're not going through all the hospitals. I don't have time. Probably some of them I can't even remember. But I made a swinging door out of Chance General's Four North. I was in, out, in, out, in, out. And every time they'd get me all nice and squeezed out, I'd go right back. And then they gave me a bunch of shock treatments, and I forgot I wasn't supposed to drink. <laughs> and I came in there with the DT so bad this one time that they had, you know, strapped, strapped down. And, and these roaches were all crawling all over me and the walls and the ceiling and everything. And I'm screaming, and I can remember them coming looking in at me through this little door. And finally, I convinced them that I really had a valid complaint because these roaches were running around. And then they came in, and they brought a man in a white coat to tell me there weren't any roaches. And it was all in my mind, and I would be better. And they gave me a shot, which probably would have knocked out a normal horse. And I'm still screaming my head off. So pretty soon, the maid came in, and I told her about the roaches, and she pulled out a flit gun and... So I went to sleep. <laughs> well, the folks, they talked me into signing myself in for a commitment for a long stay in a mental institution at the, at the guest of the state. And um, so I signed the thing, and um, I didn't realize that no matter what hospital you, you know you're in, when you, you sign into the state, they then send you over to the county for 30 days to wait being transported. That is an experience. Uh, they throw all kinds of things in the psych ward in in, uh, in the county. I mean all kinds of things. You just didn't know. And there was this one girl. She was kind of pretty. She's probably in a group around here somewhere now. Um, <laughs> She was kind of pretty, very, very young, and they were holding her and pending her parents coming to get her. She was a runaway, and they found her on Franklin Street, and um, her parents went away, and, and the beds are about this far apart, you know, about 30 on this side and 30 on that side. Three o'clock in the morning, this woman in one of the cells where they put the violent patients, I wasn't violent yet, they put the violent patients back there, and, and she starts, uh, this one in the back, Italian lady, she... Dad, the, the bedpan and banging and all crack and forth on the bars singing Aida. <laughs> uh, and the little blonde girl sits up in a van and screams, My God, there ought to be a place for people like that. <laughs> and, 
And we all assured her there was, and she was in it. <laughs> well, when I got transported to McClenny, uh, a person up there who later became my friend, of course she was an alcoholic, we always find each other, um, said I walked in like I just bought McClenny. I looked it over. Well, there were, it was a new building and a new facility. It's supposed to be wonderful, but it was terrible. This building was new and beautiful, but they had not even thought about how you were supposed to hang out your underwear, uh, you know, a little clothesline or something. So we hung them on little strings in the bathroom. And every mental institution, every ward in every nut house has a compulsive bathroom cleaner. They don't have to hire anybody for that job. They always have. And our compulsive bathroom cleaner took all our underwear down and flushed it down the john. It's a bit of a mess that morning. Plumbing wouldn't work and no underwear. Well, they put me on some medicine there, and it was so wonderful, this medicine, that you didn't really have to face anything. And if you sat down waiting for the dinner line, you went to sleep. <laughs> so I don't remember much about McClenny. I do remember that, that there was a psychiatrist there who took a big interest in me. He, uh, he had me over there to where I'm sure he must have been neglecting the other patients. I've never figured out why. Maybe it's because I wasn't the only one he had that was only 31 years old at the time. I don't know. Maybe all the rest of them were old or something or... Or maybe maybe he was genuinely interested in what made a nice girl like me end up in a place like that. But um, he was really a, a nice-looking shrink. He was uh, on his way from a practice in New York to a practice in Miami, and you have to serve the state of Florida two years to get in. So that's what he was doing up there. They gave me psychological tests and it was boxes of cards, boxes and boxes of cards, like three or five cards with questions on them. And they had slots to drop them in. It was yes, no, and I don't know. Well, I almost completely forgot the I don't know. And in a subsequent interview, he said, I think maybe you were opinionated. <laughs> well, of course, I thought I had the answer to everything. Yes, no, I don't know. There weren't very many I don't knows. And I told you at the beginning, there's more and more and more and more I don't knows. Well, they didn't give me any more shock treatments, but they gave me lots of pills. And he was getting ready to transfer to a hospital down in South Florida, and he had to leave me there. He said he was going to discharge me. He handed me a 30-day supply of, um, I don't know if it was Librium or Valium, one of those things. They're both green, aren't they? Um, he handed me a 30-day supply, and I decided not to come back to Tampa, but I'd just make a fresh start up in uh, Jacksonville with some friends. So um, I went to Jacksonville, and I took my 30 days worth of pills in three days <laughs> and um, started on uh, vodka and stuff, anything I could find. And the friends called my mother. My mom had learned a lot in this time. She came up to her armed with a bottle for me to suck on while she drove me home. To keep me quiet in the back seat here, get back there and suck on this, make it last till Tampa. Um, and I decided at this point the world would be better off without me. Oh, I'd slit my wrist before a few things like that, but you know, not a real serious attempt. 
I decided I was going to wipe Boise out. And I went, when they went downtown to sign me back into uh, the hospital, I, I went looking for something to do myself in. A daddy's gun was there, but there weren't any shells. There weren't any razor blades. There wasn't a pill in the whole house. Ah, uh, but in Grandma's house where we lived, the bathtub stood on feet. You know, to kind of have a claw-looking feet. Water runs into a little place about this big around, takes forever. But when it gets done, it'll come up to here and you can lay straight, you know. Well, uh, under the tub was a bottle of Lysol. I don't know how long I've been there. Maybe 20 years or so. Anyway, I fixed myself a cocktail, and I drank the Lysol, dropped the bottle in the trash basket, went and laid down in the bed, spread the covers neat, folded my hands. Later, Audrey said, all you needed was a lily. And the <laughs> mother came home, smelled it, picked up the bottle, added the alcohol. She said, <laughs> but they did pump my stomach and that was not fun and I was kind of burned up and I don't sing anymore either but I was so so sad and feeling so so sorry for Wheezy you just can't imagine how sorry I felt for Wheezy here I was back in the county and here come this big Irish nurse named O'Donnell and I thought this nurse, you know, nurses are supposed to sympathize, and I thought she was going to tell me something kind. And then's when she made the speech. She said, of all the selfish, inconsiderate, self-centered, egotistical, lousy things a person can do, suicide's the very worst. Don't you know that you would leave a haunting feeling with all your family and friends forever that could never be erased? Your little brother and sister would live with a cloud over their head. And she said more, but that's how much I remember. And I vowed that I wouldn't try that again. However, when the psychiatrist came to interview me about trying to commit suicide, she talked about the waste of human life. Hmm. I said, well... I do think it would have been a waste. You should have given me a 45 and let me go shoot Castro. Then I ended up at Arcadio with a violent sticker. It took him a while to stop watching me. And then I met a doctor that was a very, very good psychiatrist. You could hardly understand him because she was, uh, had an accent. But did he know his business? He gave me my first interview, and I'm an old hand by then. Do you realize how many times I've been in and out and in and out, and I knew everything in the ropes, and uh, but I'd never run into anything like him. He just, as much as dusted his hands, and said, you're an alcoholic. I can't help you. Nobody can help you but yourself. And I turned to leave, and I, listen to this, I turned around and said, what medicine will I be on? And he said, oh, you won't be on any medicine. They wouldn't give me an aspirin if I had a migraine headache. I did not see a pill of any way, shape, or form for the next eight months that I was there. 
And it was a long eight months. The eight months I'd been in McLean wasn't near as long as the eight months that I was there. But about Christmas time, my mom and my sister came down to visit me, and they bought me cigarettes and chocolate bars and soap and shampoo and stuff like that. And um, the doctor, Carl Charlie, came around the corner, and he said, Oh, you've come to see Lisa. You can take her home for a three-day pass. And my mom and sister jumped up and said, Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> we, we don't want her home. I have a nice Christmas plan. Well, that hurt my feelings. And I went uh, back down the hall to my room, my room, which I shared with three other people, and sat down to cry. And in came one of my roommates, who was later to be my roommate on the outside. Don't you realize that they want to love you and, and, and have you around, but that you've just done this to yourself? There's another Al-Anon for you. So um, that, that, that did sort of trigger something. But like the nurse O'Donnell had triggered something. And there was a woman on the same ward I was, it was from our church. She was so damn goody-goody that and she sang in the choir and I sang in the choir so she knew me. And I sang in the choir drunk, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> and um, it takes too long to get in all those things. So she knew me pretty well. And that she was so screwy. Well, of course, she was in the nut house. But anyway, on Friday, one time we had steak. One time, I don't know where it came from. Steinbrenner must have sent it or something. I, but anyway, we had steak on a Friday night, and that woman wouldn't eat it. And we were in a hospital. She put it in a bag and took it back to Ward and sat up and watched it till midnight. <laughs> so anyway, I came through and I said, so there's going to be an AA meeting in the, in the cafeteria, and there'll be coffee and donuts. And anybody that wants to go can go. This is a Saturday night, and it was the only show in town. I'd had coffee and donuts, and there had been, you know, after you're in there about so long, even, you know, well, there was one of the men on the men's ward that was beginning to look good to me. <laughs> and um, I knew he'd be there, because he never missed anything. And um, so I started thinking about, well, I guess I'll go. And besides, you know, those AA people were pretty nice to me back when I was on the outside, because I was still diagnosed with anxiety reaction and uh, some kind of schizophrenic and, and what have you, and uh, I didn't say alcoholic on my chart. But I got up and got in the line, and that Mrs., what's her name? Almost her name. She looked at me and said, well, you are not an alcoholic, are you? And I said, hell yes, you don't think I'm here because I'm crazy, do you? And I went, and I want you to know that two people drove up, just the two of them, from the Fort Myers group. Now, we're talking like, heck, what is it, 100 miles up there, each way to bring a meeting to a bunch of nuts in a loony bin. And that woman stood up, and she gave a talk that every old-timer would say was a horrendous drunk log And do you know... She was as bad as I was. I could identify with her. And I had never had hope 
All I'd ever had when I looked back at the mess I'd made was, gee, I'd be so embarrassed and so overwhelmed with what a mess I'd made, all I could do was get drunk. And I'd never really thought there was any way to mend it and make it all go good again. Never really thought it was savable. And she gave me hope. And do you know, that lady Virginia from Fort Myers, when she made this talk that turned the course of my life, had two and a half years sobriety. But, but now you don't have to wait till somebody's over 20. Get up and talk right away. That's my message. We old people up here need replacements. Who are back there closer, who'll probably tell more looser stories or whatever, you know. Well, end of editorial, back to the story. Well, I decided to get out of there. I gotta hurry up. I decided I'd get out of there, so I wrote, I wrote letters for jobs, and, uh, now if you don't think this is a miracle, I wrote a, job, a letter requesting a job on Jeeperswood Memorial Stationery, and you don't see on, and I got the job. <laughs> so that's when I went to work at the TB hospital in Pune Bedpan. And, uh, it, it, it's very good for somebody who's trying to get acquainted with the fundamentals. <laughs> people died. I mean, seriously, people do die. And here I'd been in an uptight paper pushing business all my life, and, uh, where you could get hysterical over a late report. And somehow or another, this really helped me adjust my attitude about paper products when somebody finally, you know, dies right there. Not the same anymore with the paper. Well, I got worked my way into a little rhythm there where I was going to go to AA. Of course, I had intended to go to AA. But I had to get drunk one more time. And pray God, please, that was my last drunk. I was going to go to AA. I, I, I went downtown and, and I got my hair done and I bought a new dress and, yeah, I was really kind of getting ready. I want to make a good impression. And, um, but uh, there was a lot of the old thinking there. I got my hair done at Fox and, and charged it to my mother's account. Um, and I took a taxi cab. By then I was nipping, see. I took a taxi cab home. I took the bus down, but the taxi cab back. And the folks were out of town, so I went to their house. I figured I might as well enjoy the weekend. And I stay at the hospital. And uh, I invited the cab driver in for a drink. And uh, he had a lot more sense than I did, so he had one drink and left. Um, and I went out looking for trouble. And um, so by sundown, I walked to the Seven Seas. And uh, I, I didn't have any money. I was both by then. But I knew if I talked to somebody, they'd buy me drinks. And what amount to it? I said to somebody, well, "What do you do for a living?" And then he stood back. And uh, he told me and told me and told me, "My oh, God, this is my ex-husband's cousin." So, <laughs> so I said, "Excuse me." And there's a back door to Seven Seas, and out I went. And I think this might have been the most lucid evening of my whole drinking career, I said, you know, a lot has got to change. And I did go to AA. I mean, right away after that. And I had wanted to make a big impression. And the first thing I did was drop a bottle of Coke on a concrete floor. 
And it went everywhere. And Cracker said, there's a broom or dust and a and a mop right behind that door. And it made me feel so at home. You make a mess, you clean it up. And from then on, I felt at home that I lived not too far away, even after I left my job at the hospital, when the car wouldn't run, which was often, I could, you know, that's the one that, that, that the gas tank fell off when I was on the way home from buying it, but, and a lot of other things fell off too. And even when the car wouldn't run, I could walk to that club, the one at 409 South MacDill. And I was, I was so excited about AA. I wanted to share it with everybody, the neighbors, everybody that I'd given bad checks to. I went around and told them. <laughs> and I, I had these wonderful classmates. Uh, Donnie and Audrey and I were, we were the class of 62. And, um, just like school or something. And when we sit around and talk about these people with more, you know, sobriety, we talk about how strange their behavior was and we compare notes. And the first year, I don't remember worrying about steps, sponsors, spiritual development, I just survived. I survived. I went to a lot of meetings, and in between the meetings, I sat there. I played junior on the air. I didn't play junior on the air. I helped behind the bar, or I didn't help behind the bar. But I don't remember having very much in the line of development. Maybe there's something I've forgotten. I don't know. But I never, I can't remember ever asking anybody to ever be my sponsor. They always volunteered. They'd look at me and say, boy, she needs help. My sister says I was a project of five old men. Uh, that was, that was the, the membership of the Friday night group at that time. And the next thing you know, I was making the coffee, and they were telling me what to do. And, I mean, they all five told me what to do, too. They, they had their specialties. One of my favorite stories about myself was when there was a rumor going around and I was all upset and I, I'm just having a hissy. And I said to Al Houston, what do I do? Post a notice on the board that it's not true? Or shall I just stand up and make an announcement? He says, oh, don't pay any attention. He said, next week they'll be talking about somebody else. He said, you're not that interesting. <laughs> so I had help from a lot of angles. And my mother, she jumped right on the bandwagon. And mom, bless her heart, she there were some things she wasn't ready for, and here's where miracles come in again. She showed up and Madeline talked. Madeline was a nice girl, that's what mother said. You know, Madeline had such horrendous stories as hiding her bottle in the lobby at the embassy uh, apartment. And she was a nice girl. The next week, Mother didn't go. And here's the miracle. The speaker that week told about rolling in and out of bed all over Tampa and not knowing how she'd gotten there, and Mother's hair would have stood straight up. <laughs> then Daddy got on the bandwagon. He wanted to help us fry fish to pay the rent. I've had a lot of support, folks. My brother wrote that he had, or that he had just finished reading the big book. He's an intellectual. Um, 
Uh, my sister made a novena or something. I mean, I got it from all sides. They were all supportive. Of course, Bob wasn't. He was still drunk, but we won't worry about that. Uh, no, that, that's not true. I said a prayer for him. I, I always said the prayer, God help him find AA, but I don't want him back. But, and, and he did try, to, he did try to make the program the last month of his life, but it was that last slip that, that killed him uh, on the bathroom floor growing up. But, bless his heart, I'm sure he's in that great meeting up in the sky. So I had a lot of support. And boy, there was a period here when I knew it all. And I was going to save everybody. I went on so many 12-step calls, you won't believe it. Any hour of the day or night, I was like the the spotted dog that chases a fire truck. I was ready to go. And I wasn't scared of nothing. I'd go into the, the, the worst neighborhoods, and how could anything happen to me? I was on a mission. And I don't know that I ever really helped anybody, but I kept me sober there through that. And then I got dogmatic. I knew how it worked. I told everybody how it worked. And I I had great ideas about how I was going to get back to like I was before. And then I found out I didn't want to be that way. Because that girl had to get drunk, and I didn't want to get drunk again. And that's when I really started to say, I've got to build a whole new way of thinking. And I started working on it from an intellectual point of view. And I, I don't mean, you know, like Einstein or anything, but I started trying to think things through. Trying to figure out, notice what it was I did and how I, I did things. Yeah, it can get you buggy after a while. Uh, you have to let up on yourself. But when they say think, 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 I think that's what they mean. And I, I want you to know that at the point that I ceased to be the person that had all the blackouts and DTs and so forth, and I can look back on that person like that with some other girl. I don't want to ever forget it, but I'm not that person now. I, I can have real, this sounds strange to you, I'm sure. I can have real compassion for that girl. Damn, she had a hard time. But I'm not her anymore. Because the change that has taken place in my thinking and my approach and my attitude is not anymore a practice. It's not anymore something that is a Paul Parrot could do. Because now I really feel different. I feel different inside. I feel so at ease standing here telling you about my innermost thoughts. How in the world is that possible? I couldn't give you the time of day about what I thought or felt 30 years ago. I wouldn't even tell the truth to people I was paying $100 an hour to. And now I can tell you how I feel. I feel damn good about myself. Just the way I am. I don't have an idea that I've got to have things change for me to be happy. I'm happy right now. And folks, I live in a trailer. But it's mine. And it is on one of the prettiest lakes in Pasco County. And I own that land. Nobody can raise the rent. But I'm happy with it. And I didn't start out from the bottom. I started out in the hole. You know, there's one thing people talk about starting over. 
But when you're dragging bad debts with you, that's in the hole, folks. You'd just be so lucky as to start off level on ground zero. It's that tunnel back up to earth level that gets you down. But you know what? That woman that came down there to that hospital and she told me all about this, I believed that it was possible. You can't accomplish something you don't believe is possible. It is impossible to do. Now I'm going to start sounding like... <laughs> sound like this morning. It's impossible to do something you believe is impossible. But I believed that it was possible. And so I begun, I even went back to work for the federal government and they had me. Do you know that I only have 16 months till I retire? That's fantastic. They haven't caught up with me and fired me yet. I didn't lie very much on my application this time when I went back. Of course, it helped that I'd already had status once before. But, um, I only left out a few things. I told them I was an AA, because um, they were going to find out anyway. So the best thing to do is be up front. And I'm glad I'm where I'm at. I'm not the same person, and I don't feel the same. You know, God, that I was going to earn my way to heaven when I, I was going to show up at the gate and say, here, St. Peter's my ticket, and it's crunched in all 20 places, and I've done my job, and you got I demand entrance. It's not like that. That God was as, as, is as unreal to me today as the girl that was having all those problems. Is, because God's not like that. Hey, there isn't anything you and I and all of this room put together could do that would be worthy of admission to heaven. We get to heaven because God loves us and wants us. Just like we got to the program because God loves us and wants us. None of us earned it. We can't earn anything. God the bookkeeper is out. And God the loving Father is in for me. I'm really, really grateful that Mom and I got to know each other after I sobered up. We'd sort of been at sore points throughout my life to that time. And I never did appreciate Daddy. You know, I was always embarrassed by Daddy. He's like a, a, a stand-up comedian, you know. And um, he used to embarrass us to death. One time, Mom said, you used to embarrass me too until I looked around and said, by God, everybody in town knows him and loves him. What am I worrying about? So I did learn to, to appreciate my parents for just what they were and nothing more. I'm, I'm sure that probably um, they had, well, I know they had a lot of thoughts. That shrink back there in the McClenny and I used to go over my the, the sorrows and misdirections of my early childhood that he gave me enough stuff. We dug up enough stuff I could feel sorry for myself the rest of my life without any problem. If I choose to entertain those thoughts, but I don't. I choose to think about, I can't even think of them all anymore. I choose to think about the fun things that happened and the good things that happened and the knowing and loving and, you know, you can look at the world any way you want to. You don't have to look at all the bad stuff if you don't want to. Because there's plenty on the other side of the scale. My work relations are much different. I just told you I work for the federal government. And do you know about the first time you practice in the program and you go up in there and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. They all faint. The whole bureaucracy collapses when you say that in the federal government. 
normally one would say, I inadvertently misrouted. <laughs> yeah, I just say, I sent it to the wrong damn place. So you could say that every bit of my relationship with other people is different. Most of the time. I have lapses, and I know that one drink or one lack of vigilance could slip me back into the way I was. But I also know that we are the chosen people, and it's worth fighting to keep. Because right here and now, right right today, we're the luckiest people in the world. We live in peace and prosperity, relative peace and prosperity, in the best period in history. You know, those castle days weren't so wonderful because there were fleas. That's why they carried the little lap dogs to keep the fleas off on the dogs and not the people. All the ladies that had a fan, but they didn't have dentists. You know, that they were miserable compared with our physical luxuries. Well, so we're living in the best time for human beings. Peak efficiency of living and enjoying it and being comfortable in air conditioning and swimming pools and automobiles and spaceships. We, we got it made. And we're the best country. And I personally think we're in the best part of the best country. And here we are. The biggest foul-ups in the bunch of this human race. Those who took our bodies and minds and spirits out and just abused the hell out of them. And got a second chance. And got to be here and to be happy at this best of all possible world. We're the luckiest folks in the world. And folks, I can still feel sorry for myself. Occasionally. Sometimes I still feel sorry for poor Wheezy. But that's because I'm an alcoholic. And this isn't something that's going to go away tomorrow. This isn't something that I'm going to outgrow. I'm in for the whole show, and I plan to be around. I don't plan to be one of those folks that drift off and you say, whatever happened to Weezy? Because you're going to have to look at my face as long as it's around. And I want to thank you all for listening to me. I enjoyed being here. I enjoyed hearing all the speakers. And I just feel like I'm one of the luckiest folks in the world. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.